To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Consumers and their expectations. Need one, say more, hmm? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Monday, today, the 8th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Consumers, in just a moment. First, though, the thematic approach, if you will. The theme of this economy last week was the labor market. Slowing just a bit, but still quite strong. Thank you very much. That's the TLDR. This week, the theme is shaping up to be the state of lending out there. The Federal Reserve told us this morning consumer credit was up almost 6% in November. That's thanks mostly to a pickup in credit card debt, other kinds of revolving credit a bit as well. And later this week, the big Wall Street banks are going to release their latest earnings reports, which will give us a sense of whether the bank's existing loans are healthy or whether people are starting to fall behind. We're watching that because, as Marketplace's Justin Ho reports, we are seeing some signs that delinquency rates are rising. One area where delinquency rates are picking up is household debt. And particularly, I'd say, for that auto and and credit card component of household debt, That's Shannon Siri Grind, an economist at Wells Fargo. She says that's because of rising interest rates. Auto loans, for instance, their delinquency rate is the highest since 2017 at this point. And that's consistent with, you know, elevated rates um, in, in terms of auto loans being the highest in about a decade. And those delinquencies are rising the most among younger consumers, people with lower incomes and people who have multiple types of debt. Households who have other debt, so student or auto loans, for instance, are actually seeing delinquencies rise fastest in terms of their credit card purchases. Grind says delinquencies usually rise when interest rates do, and lenders have been preparing for an uptick. Stephen Bigger, an analyst at Argus Research, says banks have been setting aside cash to cover bad loans. Thinking that the higher interest rate environment, kind of what the Fed was doing to take the uh, heat off of uh, such high inflation, was going to result in a downturn and an uptick in unemployment. But there are still plenty of factors that are keeping a lid on delinquencies. Unemployment is still near record lows. Plus, a lot of people are sitting on really cheap mortgages from back when rates were low. Kathy Bosjancic, chief economist at Nationwide, says that's a big type of household debt that she's not concerned about. The delinquency rate for for mortgages is very low. So those that are seriously delinquent 90 days or more, it's less than 1% at 0.7%. Bostjancic says delinquencies in general will probably rise more this year as the economy continues to slow down. But that doesn't necessarily mean they'll spike. If employment growth 
just moderates without having that harder landing, then delinquency rates will likely level off around where they are now. And if inflation slows further and interest rates come down, Boschansik says delinquencies might even fall. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Wall Street today, obviously all eyes on Boeing. The plane maker had a rough session for reasons you have surely already heard about. Still and all, though, the major indices finished in the green. We shall have the details when we do the numbers. Think about inflation for a second, would you? Not how you feel about it. Ain't nobody likes it. Where, though, do you think it's going to be a year from now? By way of reminder, the Consumer Price Index in November was 3.1%. All right, you got your number? According to the New York Fed's survey of consumer expectations out this morning, 3% is what the wisdom of the crowds says for inflation 12 months from now. That is, yes, still well above the Fed's inflation target of 2%, as you know, but it's also the lowest it's been in three years. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has that and some other details. The economy in the past few years has reminded St. Olaf College economics professor Allison Ligke of what it's like to get up over and over and over in the night with a newborn baby. It will never be daytime again. Like there would be high inflation forever. And then, like... You finally get up at like 4.45, then you're like, oh, dawn. <laughs> That's what I think the consumers were feeling like. And now, Ludke says this report from the New York Fed is akin to consumers seeing the sun. People are finally starting to think like, hey, maybe this will be all right. Maybe we will bring down inflation and not have enormous unemployment. One reason consumers feel good, says Middlebury College economics professor Christina Sargent, is that currently they aren't dealing with huge price swings for necessities, including gas and eggs. Those costs that they face sort of every day in their lives, they're not seeing them go up and up and up and up anymore. Still, the fact that consumers expect prices to be 3% higher a year from now could actually create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, says Veronique de Rougy, an economist with George Mason. If you're a consumer, right, and you think there will be inflation tomorrow, what you do is you buy the stuff today rather than buy it tomorrow at a higher price. And when most people do this, it tends to push price upwards. And Derugy points out prices are already way higher than they were prior to the pandemic. So even though slower price growth would make consumers' lives easier, we're not getting back to where we were three years ago. To go back to economist Allison Lucky's analogy, even though every night with a newborn does eventually end, parents never really get as much sleep as they did before. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. do various and sundry economic indicators on this program roughly all the time. Here's one, though, that we've talked about rarely, if ever, 
The Mannheim Used Vehicle Value Index, M-U-V-V-I, if you like, which does exactly what its name says. The most recent version out today says used vehicle prices went down a half percent between November and December. Overall, used vehicle prices down 7 percent from 2022, almost 21 percent from 2021, which is great and all, but why am I mentioning it? I'm mentioning it because of how all those used cars got to all those used car dealer lots. Some of them came as trade-ins, yes, but there's about a 50% chance that they got there by way of a wholesale auction. More than 10 million used vehicles were sold at auction last year. And many of those auctions, like a lot of things since the pandemic, have now moved online. Marketplace's Henry App has that story. When Scott Polite was stocking his family's used car lot near Des Moines, Iowa, back in the 90s, buying cars at auction meant rising really early. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you get to the airport, hopefully your plane's on time. He'd fly all over the country, Buffalo, Orlando, Salt Lake City, where he and other used car dealers would get picked up by a shuttle. They would shuttle you to the auction. Um, You can get there before and inspect the vehicles. All kinds of cars were there, from newer models coming off a lease to former rental cars to junkers. They ran through lanes, each with its own auctioneer, about one car a minute, so Polite and other dealers could touch, smell, and inspect them. They'd bid using subtle gestures. You know, wink an eye or nod your head or just raise your hand. All of this took place in a building that looked something like a huge auto shop, with anywhere from two to 20 or more lanes. It's full of carbon monoxide fumes and very loud auctioneers. But there were benefits, too. For one, Polite could take advantage of regional price variations. His dealership sold a lot of Lincoln Town cars back then, and as he flew around to different auctions, he noticed something. The markets in Buffalo, New York, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, had $4,000 more incentive on a new town car at that time than any other market did in the country. Which meant they were cheaper when they hit the auction block. So he'd make the trek to those cities, the snow often deterred some of his competition, buy town cars on the cheap, and sell them at a discount, while still making a profit. But his trips didn't always work out like that. There were many times we'd go in without buying a vehicle, uh, which meant the whole day was wasted. But even then, there was some value in showing up. If you're physically standing in the lane with hundreds of other dealers, there's a lot of conversations going on about the industry. Joe Wilson is the chief operating officer of CarMax, which sells directly to consumers and hosts wholesale auctions. And you kind of get a sense of what is the market? What are people selling really well? What are people not selling really well? Some of the auctions still essentially look and sound like this. But what's different now is that sound is being funneled through an online simulcast. The auctioneer was near Washington, D.C. at an event held by the company Mannheim, which auctions off millions of cars every year. Leading up to 2020, about half of the vehicles at Mannheim auctions were sold to dealers standing next to their lanes, like Scott Polite used to. But then... If we think back to COVID... There was a real turning point in our, you know, in our industry. Jennifer Heiser is a vice president of Mannheim. She says all of the company's auctions moved online when the pandemic hit. CarMax did the same and never went back. But as restrictions loosened, Mannheim let dealers into the auctions again. Some came back. You can see them pacing around in the video feed on the simulcast. But many didn't return. Now, Heiser says over 70 percent of Mannheim vehicles are sold online. The dealers realize that they no longer have to spend the entire day, you know, going and, and looking and bidding on cars. I was in Dallas today. I was in central Florida 
today, and I was in Chicago today. Jesse Lohr owns a used EV dealership in New Hampshire. He says he tried an in-person auction once and didn't really like it. When he bids online, he can look at a car's history report and compare it to other vehicles on the market. So I have a lot more data and information at my fingertips when I'm sitting in my office shopping uh, for cars on these digital platforms. But so does everyone else bidding online, and that's killed a lot of the regional price variations. So it's a lot harder to find a cheap Lincoln Town car in Buffalo. Though for Scott Polite's team in Iowa, that's not really a bad thing. Now our guys sign on. If things are too high, they sign off. They'll sign on to another auction, and they can still continue to work their current job. And they don't have to catch an early flight out of Des Moines. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. There are a couple easy ways to get into trouble on a program that covers business and the economy. Assigning an item on the stock market based on moves early in the day, that can be a recipe for disaster by the closing bell. Oil prices are another one. Doesn't take too much to spook the crude market and torpedo a hard day's reporting. Also, gas. And yet, here we are. $3 a gallon has been something of a benchmark, a price to watch. The average today, says AAA, 307. But are we going down or are we going up? Marketplace's Kristen Schwab reports on the petrol outlook for 2024. It's pretty common to start the year with a lower number at the gas pump, says Devin Gladden at AAA. The early part of the year is typically where you see the floor for prices for the year. That's because the weather's colder, the days are shorter, and people are dealing with their holiday spending hangovers. What's unique this time around is that U.S. oil production has been hitting highs, which means... Generally, we're expecting prices to be lower than they were last year. Prices in the South are already below $3 a gallon and could keep going down, says Tom Closa, Global Head of Energy Analysis at Opus. There's going to be a lot of cocktail party talk about, well, I was able to buy for $219 or $229 or $240. Some places, we're going to see price points of $1.99. Not the most exciting small talk, but it's better than complaining about the weather. Bob McNally, president of Rapidan Energy Group, says a lot of what happens with oil prices starts not on the ground, where crude is, but somewhere a bit more intellectual, in traders' minds. Prices and what traders will pay and expect for the prices depend a lot on perceptions of how the world is working. McNally says traders have largely shrugged off the Israel-Hamas war. But an expansion of the war could threaten that. If there were to be a material supply interruption, oil prices would spike. Other events that could lead to price volatility are increasingly extreme weather patterns that could disrupt supply chains and more disagreements among OPEC Plus members that could affect supply. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Coming up, skiing across it, you just go humpity-bump-bump-bump-fall. 
Helmets, people, wear your helmets. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial is up 216 today, 6 tenths percent, 37,683. The Nasdaq jumped 319 points. That's 2 and 2 tenths percent, 14,843. The S&P 566 points to the good, 1 and 4 tenths percent, 4763. Justin was talking to us about the state of lending in this economy. More insight later this week when big banks post earning reports. For today, J.P. Morgan Chase lost one-tenth of one percent. Wells Fargo flat. Citibank dropped about six-tenths percent. Investors are ditching Boeing today after the alarming malfunction of one of its 737 MAX 9 planes. You've heard about that, as I said. Boeing shares plummeted 8%. Spirit Aerosystems, which manufactures the fuselage that failed on the 737, sank 11-and-a-tenth percent. Today, you're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. The federal government, the Department of Housing and Urban Development specifically, released its annual Homelessness Point-in-Time survey a couple of weeks ago, the closest thing to an actual count of people living in shelters or temporary housing or completely unsheltered that we've got. A little bit more than 650,000 people last year, a record since the count began more than 15 years ago, and a 12% increase from 2022. Homelessness is, of course, a challenge in most big cities, but Houston has bucked that trend for years now. Since 2012, it's moved something like 30,000 people living on the streets into permanent housing. It's been able to do that because there's been a relatively low cost of living and plenty of cheap apartments. But the city is becoming less affordable and some federal funding for homelessness is drying up. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval has the story. In a puffy black jacket, old Houston Oilers hat, and rosary, Derek Escobedo flips through his phone to show me photos of his new apartment while we sit on a bench at a park northwest of Houston. They gave me everything, furniture and everything. Look at the kitchen. At 34 years old, it's the first place he's called home. My mom was murdered. My dad was murdered. Then I went to foster care when I was just 13 years old. And then from foster care, I ended up going to prison. After he got out a year ago, he started living out of his car. When I was homeless, I didn't love myself. But then when you actually get an apartment, you're like, wow, I finally got my own place. It's unbelievable. It was Houston's coordinated network of homelessness advocacy groups that connected him with a support system, a job, and a permanent federally subsidized home. But while Houston has been touted for its centralized housing first approach to homelessness that helps people like Escobedo, the area has had some market forces on its side. Market forces that are changing. I meet up with Houston area landlord Jamil Hassan outside one of his properties in a historically black neighborhood near Texas Southern University. This building was an original building built in 1930s. Hassan coordinates with Houston's Coalition for the Homeless to provide apartment units for their clients. Federal housing vouchers are used to pay rent, so Hassan has to charge what the government says is fair. Sometimes we don't agree with that, but that's a balance that Every landlord have to see what's their bottom line. Some of the apartment I used to rent for fifteen hundred. Fair market rents is thirteen twenty five. I have to go with thirteen twenty five. He's balancing that fair market rent with increased property taxes, insurance rates, and utility costs. So when you see the rent increase is thirty percent, 
we always like to blame the landlord, but if the thing's gone up by 40%, they have to make it up. Only thing is passing the cost to the tenant, and that's where we are seeing the squeeze. For now, he says, it's still worth it to work with the unhoused population. But he's just one landlord. Ashley Young with the Coalition for the Homeless works with landlords across Houston to find available housing units. She worries about the expiration of COVID-19-related funds that were used to set aside apartments for people experiencing homelessness. If they're holding the units off the market, uh, we were able to uh, offer what's called um, some landlord incentive fees. It can offset those initial move-in costs and stuff. That funding goes away this year, all while a bigger concern is looming. Being priced out. There are signs that housing is becoming less accessible in Houston. The Rice University study found that median rent between 2015 and 2021 increased about 30 percent and outpaced income growth in the Houston area. And recent eviction filings are roughly 40 percent more than the pre-pandemic average per Princeton University's eviction lab. Even though we do have like programs and people at the coalition who help with increase of income or getting people to uh, connect it to jobs. It may not be enough for people to stay self-sufficient when their housing vouchers run out. And as the cost of living increases, the staff who run these homelessness programs are also feeling the pinch themselves. Mike Nichols is the outgoing CEO of the Coalition for the Homeless. Care providers have not overall, from what I read, they have not kept up economically with, in, with inflation. We continue to have way too much turnover for case managers. In many ways, Houston area homelessness advocates are trying to do more with less. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. You got your giant, dare we say, corporate ski resorts, all the bells and whistles, ski runs galore with costs for rooms or Airbnbs, not to mention lift tickets to match. But small mom and pop ski resorts are the heart of many a mountain ski town. Lifts can be had for maybe $100. Hills are smaller, sure, easier too. And maybe there are just a couple of lifts, but way less crowded, right? What happens though, when winters as they are become less predictable? Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan has that one. It's a blue sky day at White Pine Ski Resort, a two-chairlift ski hill outside of Pinedale, Wyoming. Families are sitting outside eating burgers and fries, but one thing is missing, skiing. The snow is sparse with rocks and grass poking through. Are you guys itching to ski? No, itching to snowboard. Oh, to snowboard. Oh, yes, we're waiting to get up here and play. Since the ski hill isn't open yet, local Kelsey Bailey and her three kids, Axel, Hannah, and Monet, are doing a snow dance. The idea is if they dance enough, the snow just might start falling. Let's see your dance, Axel. White Pine is a winter staple for locals. Owner Alan Blackburn wears a Carhartt jacket and tweed flat cap. He looks up at the empty hill. The little road which runs up the hill, you, normally it's covered, but you can just make it out here. But with little snow, Blackburn says it's dangerous. All you do is skiing across it, you just go 
humpity bump 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 fall trip they could easily come out of their skis and break their leg in the past white pine could rely on opening by december 1st with sometimes hundreds of skiers buying lift tickets daily but over the last decade blackburn says the snow has become unpredictable meaning they can't open on time and make money and the next closest ski hill from white pine is 88 miles away I think the ski resort industry is going to suffer because of just variability. Sophia Schwartz is a professional skier with the group Protect Our Winters. They talk a lot about climate change and its effects on the ski industry. Folks who are looking to plan maybe a holiday vacation might be skeptical about choosing to come to these winter environments. Because of a lack of snow. So the only way around that? Man-made snow. A mixture of water, cold temperatures, and high-pressure air. Snowmaking machines spew out icy snow across Snowy Range Ski Resort near Laramie, Wyoming. They're locally owned with five chairlifts, and they did open December 1st. What we're open on right now is, is pretty much all snowmaking snow. Riley Copeland oversees snowmaking at the 250-acre Snowy Range, and he says it's a must they wouldn't be open without it. I mean, that's just money lost without having customers here. But snowmaking isn't cheap. HKD Snowmakers, a company that makes snow guns and related products, says the initial investment in tech to make snow for just one acre can run anywhere from $60,000 at the low end to half a million dollars. Back at White Pine, owner Alan Blackburn says he might invest in snowmaking equipment for next season. It's the only way he might be able to consistently open early and get lift tickets sold. It'll help my pocket at the moment. It's got a big hole in it. A hole that means the wider community is losing money too, as outdoor shops and restaurants and hotels also wait for snow to bring customers to town. In Pinedale, Wyoming, I'm Caitlin Tan for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, if you're a golf fan and you've got a brand you want to promote and honestly nothing less than a boatload or two of money, Tiger Woods is up for grabs. After 27 years with Nike, Woods announced today he is moving on. CNBC put some numbers to it. Over the nearly three decades they were together, Woods made about $500 million from the partnership. In return, every time Woods played all four rounds of a tournament, Nike got somewhere between two and four million dollars worth of exposure. Our daily production team includes Andy Corbin, Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sarah Leeson, Sean McHenry, and Sophia Torenzio. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.